no one should ever sacrifice their own well-being to maintain a psychologically devastating relationship. No one should ever sacrifice their own well-being to maintain a psychologically devastating relationship. So the final option for reconciliation is not having a direct relationship with the person, but being able to find resolution inside yourself. This can be the best choice. You know, if the other person suffers from mental illness, if they're an addict or they're violent or toxic, then reconciliation becomes an inside job. And you shouldn't see this as a failure. When I started studying this topic, I used to think that the opposite of estrangement was reconciliation, but it actually, the opposite is peace. Like, what do we have to do to get to a place of peace with the reality of this relationship? Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. Building on decades of professional experience, this podcast tackles neurobiology, modern attachment, and more in an honest way that's helpful in healing humans. Your session begins now with Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, everyone. This is Ann. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind everyone of our first live Therapist Uncensored meetup, April 22nd, 2022. So it is coming up and we are so excited about it. So one of our goals at Therapist Uncensored is to build community. And we really want to do this live. And the hub meeting is in Austin, Texas, because that is where Sue and I reside. But we are helping to coordinate meetings all over the U.S. and abroad on the same day with volunteer therapist uncensored listeners just like you who are agreeing to be host. So we have them popping up all over Bozeman, Montana, Long Beach, California, Brisbane, Australia, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, Milwaukee, Nigeria, just to name a few. If you're interested in joining or hosting a meeting in your area, if there's not already one, you can go to our main Facebook page or go to therapistuncensored.com backslash meetup and sign up there. Find it on our website as well. Now remember, hosts are just responsible for picking a public location in your area to meet for happy hour or coffee and communicating. So it's no cost to you. So we're really looking forward to it and can't wait to see the groups of Therapist Uncensored Neuro Nerds getting together. So fun. All right. So let's start tapping into today's episode. If you've been around a while, you surely remember the book, The Courage to Heal. It was published probably around 30 years ago, and it was one of the first books to talk about healing from childhood sexual abuse. So in essence, it led to one of the first Me Too movements where other survivors of sexual abuse began to feel more comfortable coming forward and came out about their own abuse, really in droves. In today's episode, Sue Marriott catches up with Courage to Heal co-author Laura Davis. Together, they deep dive into some of the surprises in her latest book, The Dying Light of Two Stars. They discuss the powerful insights that Laura had in her own healing journey. Everything from the unreliability of memory to the realistic nature of what can happen when families have been divided and they start to reunify. You know, with so many fractures among families today, whether it's moral or political divisions or histories of sexual abuse within the family, 
you know, the steps they cover about safe family reunification, I think will be really useful to many of our audience out there. So Laura also shares actually beautiful excerpts from her novel that bring home some of the most salient points when it comes to healing. Besides writing, Laura's passion is teaching, and she loves to teach others to learn to write truthful words that heal. So she's created a dedicated page for our listeners. Go to lauradavis.net backslash therapist uncensored, which includes bibliotherapy resources as well as a free 30-day practice called Writing Towards Courage. So you can find this and much more in our show notes. We want to also do a big thank you to our patrons out there who are part of getting this great content from Therapist Uncensored out there to help spread security one episode at a time. So if you find this content useful to you or to your clients, or your family members, you can offer some support. We invite you to jump on to therapistuncensored.com backslash join and become a fellow nerd nerd and get exclusive content and learning opportunities and also just have an opportunity to support Sue and I in this process. Let's start to jump into today's episode. Now, I did want to make a note. This episode touches on some pretty tough topics, including child sex abuse. So As you start to listen, I just wanted to make a note about that. We predict a lot of light bulb moments for you for sure in this episode. So let's go and listen to Sue Marriott talking with Laura Davis. So can you start us off and like orient everybody around your story? It's so fascinating. Yes. My name is Laura Davis and I have been a writer my whole life from the time I was a little girl. And I've used writing both as a tool for my own healing, my own clarification, for making decisions, for understanding my deeper thoughts and feelings. And I've also used it publicly as a way to provoke, as a way to entertain, as a way to inform, as a way to inspire, as a way to challenge. And this has been, you know, my trajectory is all surrounded with words. The story that I want to talk about today is is what I wrote about in my memoir, The Burning Light of Two Stars. And The story it tells is about this lifelong embattled relationship I had with my mother, our determination to love one another, and this very dramatic and surprising collision course we ended up on at the end of her life. Part of what's so interesting about this is that many may know you from your first book. So for many of us who have read that book and used that book, it is the next chapter. It it is like, oh, wow, this is what happens later. When you talked about shocking or provoking, your first book started a movement. Yeah. I wrote The Courage to Heal with Ellen Bass. I was only 28 years old when we started writing that book. It was published when I was 31. I was a baby. And you know, we were in the right place at the right time, able to communicate in a way that spoke directly to survivors of child sexual abuse in a way that touched them, that inspired them, that made them really relate to the stories. And and ours was really the very first book that talked not just about the damage of sexual abuse, but what was the healing process. And we mapped it out in a very accessible way. And the book took off and became this underground grassroots bestseller in a way that I never, ever anticipated would happen. And it catapulted me into being basically famous for the worst thing that had ever happened to me. At a young age, when I was not really prepared 
for that kind of spotlight. Mm-hmm. It was the first Me Too movement, in a sense. It was the first wave. So you were so young when you wrote it, and it was about healing and stuff. You know, what about your own journey of discovering, coming to be aware of your abuse? That's very young to be, to be, you know what I mean? Like, were you in the middle of your process of healing? Was this part of your healing? How did this work? It was definitely part of my healing. I had been someone who blocked out the abuse until I was 27. So very soon before we started working on the courage to heal, I began to have memories of my grandfather's sexual abuse. And it came up in the context of my first really committed intimate relationship. I was with this woman and I thought we were going to be to get, you know, she was it, she was my forever person. And when intimacy and sexuality were together, I started shutting down and I couldn't function sexually. And she got really angry at me one day when I failed again to make love and, you know, started screaming at me, you know, what happens? Where do you go? Because I was dissociating. I didn't know what was happening to me. And it was at that moment under that microscope that the first memory emerged. And in this little child's voice, I just said, I was molested. Saying those words out loud, I knew they were true. And it absolutely changed the course of the rest of my life. I got into therapy very quickly, luckily with a really great therapist. I joined a support group. I was in a a group about writing to heal with Sandra Butler, who wrote Conspiracy of Silence. And I became obsessed with healing from sexual abuse. I also felt incredibly damaged. You know, my girlfriend broke up with me. I was certain I'd never be capable of love or having a family, which is something I had wanted. I just felt like my life was over. And in that time of being completely overwhelmed and and in what we later called the emergency stage of healing, that time of deep immersion, I threw a party. (laughs) I was 28 years old. I had just come back from Alaska where I had been working as a talk show host and a news reporter before that. And I was kind of at odds in my career. I knew I was a communicator of some kind, and I'd already been writing and publishing, you know, in small magazines and newsletters. And I had a party where I invited people to come and and help brainstorm what I should do with the rest of my life. This was like took a tremendous amount of chutzpah. I brought people and I cooked them a really nice meal. And then I had them fill out a four page questionnaire about me, you know, and then I gave a little presentation about how I could never work in a corporation that I didn't want to dress up, that I was a communicator and, and it was a great meeting. And at the meeting was Ellen Bass, who I ended up co-authoring courage to heal with. And Ellen had been my writing teacher a number of years before, and we had become friends. And at that party, she told me that she had just published this book, I Never Told Anyone, which was the first book of women's first-person accounts of sexual abuse. And the publisher was Harper and Rowe at the time. That's what they were called. And they wanted her to write a sequel about healing. And she didn't want to. I mean, she Ellen is about 10 years older than me, and she was married. She had a child. She had a full-on career. And she just said, I know what it is to write a book, and you don't. If I would do this with anyone, it would be you, but no. And then I spent the next couple of months just working on her. You know, I'd say, well, how about if I just do all the interviews for the first year, and you just keep doing what you're doing, and then you join in? How about if I do all the parts you don't want to do? I mean, this was before computers. I wrote that book on a Mac 128, and Ellen wrote it typing on an IBM Selectric. And when she wanted to edit pages, she would cut them up with a scissor and scotch tape them back together. And then I would put them into the computer. So you were sort of figuring it out as you were writing. Ellen had been doing writing workshops for many years, and women started coming and writing about sexual abuse. And I think 
what we came up with in that book came from survivors themselves. It came from the women she worked with in those groups. And it came from, you know, the couple of hundred incredibly in-depth interviews that I did in that first year we were working on it. And we didn't live in the same city at that time. And we got together for a couple of very long weekends and came up with like a 60 page outline. And the finished book was actually quite close to that outline. I was convinced that Harper and Rowe would never publish it, that the book would be too radical. You know, it was holding perpetrators to task. It was challenging the patriarchy. There were a lot of lesbians in it, you know, and I just thought when they read this, it's going to be too radical and they published it. And so I basically, you know, gained the world and this kind of weird sort of fame for my trauma. And it also was devastating to my relationship with my mother. She and I had had a very challenging, difficult struggle-filled relationship. And when I came and told her that her father had sexually abused me, that was really like the last straw. And, you know, she basically chose her dead father over her living daughter. And at the time I wanted desperately her to support me, you know, she attacked me, said I was lying. I was making it up for spite. And that began a very long and bitter estrangement between the two of us. So, you know, I gained the world. I lost my family. We're going to talk more about memory in a little bit, but with that kind of disavowal, did you ever doubt yourself? Did you ever sort of lose your certainty in this process? Or did, was it once you knew you knew? No, I doubted it all the time. I mean, I think that is part of the process is, you know, believing it happened is, is one of the stages of the healing process is like, could this really be true? And, and I also, I, I wanted it to go away so that I wouldn't have this terrible rift with my mother going on. But I think underneath, I knew it was true, but there was just, there was, I had a part, you know, I had a part that was like, maybe I could just make this all go away. Absolutely. And, you know, it's these double binds and you were an adult. So, you know, I'm thinking about kids that are aware, but can't be aware, but also are aware, but can't be aware, right? That it's this perfect double bind around that you need the support and you need to tell and in telling something maybe even more terrible could happen, which is the not believing and the disavowal and the now you've lost potentially what should have been your protector. You know, I think of it a little bit like a Sophie's Choice, like, which do I hold on to myself and know and keep my knowledge and tell my truth? Or do I confuse myself and and hold on to my caregiver? Right, right. And I at that point, I had already moved 3000 miles away from my mother and my family of origin which was a very intentional move. I, I moved basically as far from her as I could get without crossing an ocean. And so I had created that distance, which I needed. But yeah, it was it was incredibly painful. And that estrangement, you know, in your intro, you were talking about estranged relationships. I found that during that period when we were so bitterly estranged, you know, she was in my head all the time. I mean, I, we weren't speaking but she was totally alive in me and it was her critical voice. It wasn't her better qualities. So, you know, it's like endeavoring not to think about her. I thought about nothing else. That was my experience. You know, I, I made, I created the distance, but not psychically. That rings so true. And your book is so incredible about those kinds of dilemmas and those kinds of paradoxes. I'm wondering, you know, would you be willing to read a little bit to kind of bring the audience into these kinds of layered experiences that you did such a great job of, you know, putting on paper. I'd be happy to. This book is written with different time frames all mixed together. There's a lot of stories from the past, from the time I'm talking about when The Courage to Heal came out and my young life. 
but the bulk of the story takes place from the time my mother is 80 years old and she contacts me out of the blue. She calls me in California and tells me she's moving across the country to my town for the rest of her life. And she was already showing signs of dementia. And at that point, we had already achieved a certain degree of reconciliation, you know, over a period of 40 years, or maybe 30 years at that point. We'd spent probably 30 years beginning to heal that relationship. And, you know, we had achieved, I would say, kind of a cordial relationship with no intimacy. In large part, the reason that the relationship succeeded is that there was this 3,000 mile buffer between us. So her phone call that she was coming was very challenging to me. And part of me was like, no way. And this is going to ruin my life. But part of me actually secretly, I think, I don't know that I could have admitted it at the time. I was longing for the possibility that we could actually heal our relationship the rest of the way. And, you know, it was like, you know, this was the end of her life. And, and also I, I thought a lot about, despite the fact that she had betrayed me so powerfully in the past, the question before me was, you know, can you caretake a parent who betrayed you in the past? And what kind of daughter do I want to be? I didn't feel I owed it to her because I felt the breach between us had broken any obligation. So it really was a choice. And I realized I did want to be the kind of daughter who could take care of my elderly mother. So she moved to California. And this scene that I'm going to read to you, she's 81 years old. She's you know in the stage of dementia where she's starting to lose her friends because she can't remember anything and she misses all the dates. And then she is explosive and blames them. And she's full of anxiety and she's becoming more isolated. And I came back from a week-long work trip and was at her house. And I was, she didn't live with me ever, directly live with me, but she lived across town. And I was doing things like, you know, fixing her computer and all the kinds of things I could do for her. But I was cold, you know, and she was uh, having a very difficult time. And I went to hug her and she just pushed me away, you know, and she said, you're faking it. And she was right. So I was going through all the motions of being a good daughter, but my heart was really still hardened against her. And after that confrontation with her, I went home and I wrote this. Three decades earlier, I had erected an impenetrable wall between us, a fortress with narrow slits so I could watch her approach. I ensured that my defenses were prepared any time she came near me. I always had an escape plan. It's true we later reconciled, and the fact that we were able to create a functional relationship was a miracle, but it wasn't an intimate miracle because I never took down my wall. Oh, I taught myself to be kind to her in a fake it till you make it sort of way, but I still held her at bay. My wall just got subtler. It isn't permeable. It was hard and opaque, and there was no door. We only met in the antechamber, the common room where guests are received. Only my polished self was on display, my masked self, and only in the antechamber. Mom never saw my inner sanctum, and I never saw hers. I got as close as I could within the constraints I had established, but closed is closed, and a closed heart is a lonely one. 
The price I paid to keep my mother out, at first with withdrawal, later with an armed fortress, and finally with the polite rules of detente, was love. The pure, unfettered love I longed for. The pure, unfettered love she craved. That day in the kitchen when I couldn't comfort her, I had to face it. My mother was still a stranger to me, with tentacles of need I was loath to touch. I wanted to be more than kind, to do more than merely what was right. I wanted to love my mother just once, freely and with the relief of a lost, exhausted child, beyond words and beyond all pretense. I wanted to lay my head on a place that was safe just once before it was too late. So that's kind of every story, every movie, every TV show, every memoir, which this is, you know, has a trajectory for the character, the protagonist. And, you know, in a memoir, of course, the protagonist is me. And that journey of can I move from my head and my defenses into truly having an open heart in this very imperfect relationship, that's the journey that the reader gets to watch as they move from the time she arrives in California until her death. Having read the book, it is a beautiful one and and raw and honest. And I think everyone can hear again the complexity and the layers. And to me, the word that just comes to mind is honest. You're articulating things that people experience, but a lot of times don't have words for. And as far as that trajectory goes now, as you look back on it, that was setting up the arc. What are your feelings about the arc? (laughs) <laughs> when you were a writer and a storyteller, there's an arc you create for the book. You have to take the raw stuff of your life, which is this happened and that happened and this crisis happened. And, th- and you have to find the story in it, you know, because otherwise people don't want to read it. And I, I worked really hard to make this a book that people couldn't put down, you know, that with a lot of suspense and a lot of surprises and, you know, everything in it did happen, but there's a lot of things that happened that I left out. So I guess I would say that, you know, for me, my mother's arrival and becoming her caretaker was absolutely one of the hardest things I've ever done. And I needed a tremendous amount of support. I I had to get back into therapy because my mother's behavior in her early dementia mirrored the worst qualities that I had grown up with, you know, which was rage, which was gaslighting, which was impulsiveness, which was totally never knowing who I was going to meet when I walked in the door. It was intense anxiety, lashing out. So, you know, that's a lot of the symptoms of early dementia. And I remember a lot of times thinking, you know, is this the disease or is this just the same screwed up mother I've always had? Because, you know, a lot of those qualities had been kind of under wraps, you know, for a period of years between us, it really had not been explosive. It had not been that way. We both had learned to hold certain boundaries with each other that enabled us to have a mostly peaceful and positive relationship. At one point we had agreed to disagree, you know, this huge issue between us, which was the incest, did it happen or not? We set it aside. And I could only do that once I had done a tremendous amount of healing. And I had gotten to the point where I knew the damage wasn't permanent, you know, that I was okay. You know, I was able to have, you know, I've been in a relationship for over 30 years. We've raised three children. I have three grandchildren. I've had a successful career. I have friends. You know, it's not that it's not that there aren't still some imprints, 
from both the incest and my mother. But, you know, I had gotten over the hump of knowing that I could be a functional, happy person. And that was the point where I was able to begin to think about reconciling with her. But when she had dementia, it was like I was back facing the worst of our relationship from the far past. And I also, as time went on, I was the person with all the power, which I reveled in. You know, I loved being in charge of her for a change. And I I realized over the course of those years that that could turn very dark. And I didn't want it to, you know, I could have been cruel and I could have gotten away with it. And I could have like extracted my revenge. But I decided when that possibility raised itself, which is something I do write about, I immediately went out and got help. You know, I joined a support group working with early stage Alzheimer's patients. I got back into therapy and I, I really worked to separate the past and our history from the contemporary situation we were in now. And, you know, whether I actually got all the way to opening my heart, that's what you have to read the book to find out. I mean, that's the question that I explore. How deeply did we reconcile? You'll have to read it to find out because I think that's the trajectory that people are are looking to find out. And, you know, I'll say it was not a perfect ending. This is not a, um, a storybook Hallmark card reconciliation story. It's really gritty and it is funny in places, hysterically funny in places. It's tragic in places. It's real. And I think anyone who is either struggling in an estranged relationship or a caregiver or dealing with someone at the end of their life will really understand what I'm writing about. I think so too. And I really like you framing it up with the passage that you read that was so incredible and so beautiful around like you got clear about your vision, which would help you as far as for yourself, like who you wanted to be. So I'm sure that in the struggle and in the fight that like having the clear vision of like where you are in this and what you want of yourself, for yourself, for the people in your life now, you know, had to have been like an orienting North Star organizing force when all of this is happening to you, you know? Yeah, I, I really tried to hold on to that. And one of the people most helpful was my spouse, Karen, who was not my mother's daughter. She was her daughter-in-law. She didn't have the history I did. She didn't have all the layers of resentment and all the triggers. She wasn't triggered by her the way I was. And she made a huge difference in my journey. For one, she was incredibly helpful and she would always step in when I was out of town. She would be the one showing up for my mother. She did for her. She she was a caregiver too. But more than that, there's one scene where I'm at the dining room table and I'm making a list. And the list is reasons mom can't live alone because we were at war again. You know, we're at war over her driving. Should she be able to drive? Should she be able to live independently? Did she need to go to assisted living? Did she need help with her pills? You know, all these questions. And she wanted desperately to be independent and I wanted to keep her safe, which meant kind of containing her. And she was not containable. And so I was writing this list to prove that she could not live alone. And Karen walked in and she looked at what I was doing and she confronted me. And, you know, she basically said, you know, why are you always focusing on her weaknesses? Why aren't you focusing on her strengths and trying to build her up? You know, that and that was like a a really critical moment in my trajectory to be confronted like that and to really have to think about how not just then, but my whole life, I had focused on my mother's weaknesses. I had set them in stone, every trespass I had remembered. And her good qualities, which actually were many, 
I just let them flow through my fingers like they hadn't happened. She didn't have the same history. So in her body and her nervous system, she didn't have that armor. So it really speaks to something that we talk a lot about on the show around attachment and attachment injuries and how our nervous system can unconsciously set up based on our environment to keep us safe. So this is a great example. And I think there's some more that we'll get into related to memory of the implicit experience and what you're describing is kind of like holding on to it, really holding on to it, but not consciously, not meaning to, but it's just kind of what your nervous system is doing. But we introduce a nervous system that's free of that. And the same situation looks really different. So it both is validating of this power of the early attachment relationship, you know, the power of your early experience, but also of memory. Like you were just describing kind of like writing these things down, like holding on to the memories of something that would, again, keep you safe. It would help you armor up. But in the book, you also get to a place where that you begin to question that, question your story in that way. Like some real surprises. Yeah, there were some real surprises. Absolutely. There's one small thread in the book that's connected to the fact that when my mother died and I went through her things, I found this shoebox full of letters, all the letters I had ever written to her, all the letters she had ever written to me, she had kept copies of. And then there were first drafts of the letters she had censored that she, you know, had never sent. In the, my office, there's these stairs and there's like a crawl space. And in that crawl space were these big turquoise plastic boxes, like a banker's box size. So four big boxes. And it was everything I had saved from my past because I always said, I'm a writer. I might need this someday. And I didn't even know what was in those boxes, but in those boxes were all the letters I had sent to her, all the journals I had kept during that time that had all the drafts of the letters that I had never sent either. And as I started going through these letters after she died, when I put them together, there was like these two very fat file folders full of these moldy, musty letters that had these like rusty paper clips on them. You know, they had, and the pages were brittle and I, I had to force myself to read them and there were all these written artifacts of our relationship. And as I read them, I made some really painful discoveries that forced me to reassess the history that I thought I knew. So I'm going to read you one example. Tucked in our correspondence, I discovered a single page of notes I had written after the therapy session mom and I had during the worst period of our estrangement. At the time, she was 57 and living in New Jersey. I just turned 29 and was living in San Francisco. It had been a year since I'd remembered the incest and Ellen Bass and I were hard at work on the courage to heal. My whole life was dominated by incest and there was a huge gaping hole where family used to be. I still secretly hoped that mom would take me in her arms and say, oh honey, I'm so sorry I didn't protect you. I knew that would never happen, but part of me was still holding out for a miracle. Mom was praying for a miracle, too, hoping I'd recant. That, too, would never happen. I had crossed a line and was never going back. The two of us at a standstill, an impasse, at war. And during this terrible time, my mother agreed to fly to California for a session with me and my therapist. To open that session, I read out loud a letter I had composed, a fantasy version of the letter I wished my mother had written to me. 
I wept as I read her these coveted words. Dearest Laurie, I'm sorry you are in so much pain. It has been difficult for me to believe you because I didn't want to face that my father could have hurt you in that way. Frankly, denial has been the easiest way for me to deal with the unpleasant things in life. But now that I see how deeply this has affected you, I must step past my own denial and support you. I believe what you have told me. What my father did was an atrocity. No wonder it has so deeply affected you. Sometimes it must seem like it would have been better to have never remembered at all. But now at least you could put to rest some of the deep questions you've had about your life. I am so sorry it happened to you. Sorry I didn't see it, didn't stop it. Sorry you are living with it still. My biggest regret is that I didn't protect you. But you have to remember, Lori, such things were not even thought of back then. Unfortunately, nothing can be done about that now. Yet here we are in the present, two adult women. As your mother, I want to give you whatever love and nurturing I can to help you get through this thing. I'm not saying this to rush you. I know it will take time for you to heal. You've lived with this secret festering inside of you for more than 20 years. That's got to have taken its toll. I want you to know that you have my full support for as long as it takes for us to lick this thing. He's not going to win. You're not going to let him, and neither am I. Lori, I think you're incredibly brave to do this work. I am proud of you. I only hope I could face my own life with as much grit and determination. It is only with this kind of truth that we could forge the kind of healthy mother-daughter relationship we have always wanted. I truly believe this healing can bring us together. All my love, Mom. When I finished reading the letter that I wished she had written to me, I looked up. Mom sat across from me, gripping her pocketbook. After a long silence, she finally spoke. It's like the Lori I love so much and want to comfort is sitting right there. And there's this other horrible monster next to her making these accusations about my father. When she said that, something tore inside me. The last shred of hope that she'd take my side. I pressed my legs against the nubby cushion, willing myself to stay present. I glanced over at my therapist, sitting in the armchair between us. I felt her silent encouragement. Say what you need to say, Laura. This is what we've been preparing for. Mom, they're just one person. It's a package deal. It's taken me a year to accept and love that monster, and I can't afford to split her off from me anymore, not even for you. Mom sat alone, looking so much smaller and less threatening than the mother in my head. She dug in her pocketbook for a tissue, snapped the gold clasp shut. Then she repeated the litany I'd heard so many times before, how every choice I'd ever made was to spite her, 
how I was making up the incest for revenge, how she was the real victim. Each word felt like a blow, only this time I had a witness. I wasn't crazy. My mother wasn't the innocent, wronged mother she made herself out to be. I became myself in spite of her, not to spite her. That therapy session made things clear, and I guess that was the point. For me to give up hope, to let the impasse stand, to stop waiting for my mother to magically turn into someone she couldn't be. Until now, that's all I remembered from that session, her denial. Mom flew home heartbroken. I went home brokenhearted. And the next time I saw my therapist, she said, your mother is the most narcissistic person I have ever met. Maybe she shouldn't have said that to me, but she was sick of me always questioning myself, tying myself in knots to stay connected to a mother who could never really see me. For years, I waved my therapist's assessment around like a flag. I loved having that word to describe my mother, narcissistic. But then she and I reconciled, and I forgave her, and she forgave me. Who cared about labels? But now there was an open box in my lap, and in my hands, a single sheet of paper, notes I'd taken immediately after that session written in ink in my own hand. I didn't remember anything I had written on that page. It was as if I was hearing it for the first time. My mother told me about the time her sister Ruth had played tapes of their father's 90th birthday party. Mom said, when Ruth played me those tapes, I started to cry and I didn't know why. Could it be that we were all celebrating him, but it was all wrong? I didn't remember that. Mom said that her therapist had explained to her that women often remember abuse many years after it happens, and that I might have too. Then Mom said, as my therapist pointed out to me, why would Lori go through all that just to spite you? Then Mom added, I realized you wouldn't. I didn't remember that. The final note on the page was a direct quote from my mother. I had a flash of my father telling a story Saturday morning. He wore pajamas with a hole at the crotch. I remember thinking how ugly his penis looked. It must have been erect, or I wouldn't have thought it was so ugly. Under that quote, I had jotted down my reply. Mom, that's when he abused me. That's how it started, when he told me stories. I didn't remember that either. I didn't remember any of it. All I remembered about that session was my mother's hard, cold, steel wall, her refusal, her denial, that once again she chose her dead father over her living daughter. That was all I was able to recognize at the time. It's how I've held that session in my mind for decades. But I forgot mom's courage. Even when she was up against something she absolutely couldn't bear to face, she tried 
30 years later, holding this brittle sheet of paper in my hands, I can see that she tried to look into the past. She asked herself the question, what if Lori is telling the truth? She dug down as far as she could bear to go until she couldn't bear to go any further. And she did it because she loved me, because she didn't want to lose me. She didn't want to lose her horrible, lying, traitorous daughter. And so she wrestled with it. She peered into the vast, untenable darkness. She looked into those flames. My mother must have been in hell. I can see that now. I can also see that she tried. She didn't cut me off. She didn't sit Shiva and proclaim me dead. She flew across the country to face pain and misery. I can see how much she loved me. It's still really emotional to read it, actually. I recorded the audiobook last spring, and it was interesting because, for one, I caught a lot of errors in the book from reading it out loud, but I was shocked at how much I felt every scene I read because I rewrote these scenes like a hundred times. I had so much distance from the raw first draft because it's a book is something you craft. People say, oh my God, Laura, you're so vulnerable. How could you be so vulnerable? I don't feel that way about what I write because I'm writing about something from the past. I'm not writing about my current edge in life. That would feel vulnerable. But when I read it out loud, and even now reading that piece right now out loud, I really feel how I felt in that therapy session. I feel so much empathy for my mother and I feel so much regret, you know, that I just had to hold her in the box of the enemy. I had to keep her as my antagonist, period, instead of for the you know, incredibly complex, multi-layered, flawed person she was. You know, and I had to see me as the victim. And now I see me as the incredibly complex, multi-layered person I was. That's why it took me 10 years to write this memoir, because I had to get to the point of being able to create on the page two very human characters. I had to do a lot of work to get there. <laughs> The implications of this are just profound for all of us, right? That we believe our stories and we don't usually have a record like you do. So for you to be able to, after the fact, put pieces together, add the complexity, open further even around seeing her as this three-dimensional complex character as well as yourself, it is so powerful. And one of the things I was thinking was, I wonder... So one interpretation, of course, is that just unconsciously you needed to not hold those things. It would have been too difficult to hold, you know, kind of the whole picture maybe at that time. But I was also thinking with such a blow at the beginning of the session with her dropping, all she would have had to have done is nodded or agreed or, you know, like, yeah, what you said. Or, I mean, just you handed it to her. It was just gift wrapped. It was, you know, it was so beautiful. So with that blow... I can imagine, again, just going back to the nervous system and how we think of it in therapy, is there would have been no new experience. Like the wall came down. So the hippocampus is offline, and that's what does the autobiographical memory. You know, you're in limbic, you're surviving. And so the stuff that happens afterwards literally doesn't go in. Like you said, it, you would not know this had you not written it right afterwards. 
So it, it's just so incredibly powerful. And I appreciate you being so vulnerable as to share a little bit more about the immediate experience of it, even this far back, you know what I mean? Even though that this has been quite a while, just such a gift. I so appreciate that. Reconciliation is something that you've talked about a lot. And I'm imagining people applying some of these ideas to their own lives. Could you just very briefly, I know that you've written a book about this too, for folks that are in pain right now and thinking about their own cutoffs, their own um, personal cutoffs, would you just say a few words about that, about your suggestions around for them? Yeah, I started writing, I thought we'd never speak again, which is the book I wrote on reconciliation about 20 years ago. It's more of a, you know, it's not a memoir, it's a how-to. And when I started writing that, I had certain assumptions about reconciliation. I wasn't an expert. I was interested because my mother and I were struggling at that point to rebuild a relationship. And I found that, you know, I interviewed many people for the book. I interviewed like Vietnam veterans who went back to Vietnam. I interviewed people involved in restorative justice. I interviewed Germans, uh, children of Holocaust survivors who went to workshops with children of Germans and children of Holocaust survivors who met together and did psychodrama. I interviewed many, many family members who were struggling to try to reconcile difficult relationships. And I had certain assumptions. One was that reconciliation was always slow. But then I remember I interviewed one woman who jumped right back into a successful relationship with her brother after a 10-minute phone call. You know, and I also assumed that reconciliation could only happen if people openly talked about all their differences, you know, that had torn them apart. And then I found numerous examples of people who actually found their way to being reconnected by avoiding potential minefields. And that, you know, what I came to understand was that the solution, the integrity of the solution had to do with it having emotional integrity for the people involved. That what matters in reconciliation is the emotional integrity for both people involved, you know, because there's a difference between reconciliation and capitulation. And many people, when they're in these situations, they cave in and they capitulate. You know, it would have been for me if I had said, you know, you know what, mom, you're right. The incest never happened. Or I'm going to shut up and never talk about this again. You know, or I'm going to, I'm not going to publish my book. I'm just going to be a good little quiet girl and go back into this little jack in the box, you know, that I've lived in my whole life. But my decision to agree to disagree, which I'll talk about in a minute, came because I had fully talked about the situation. You know, people often imagine when they think about reconciliation, they imagine like some scene out of the movies where, you know, it's a deathbed scene and, you know, the father and son come together and the father tearfully apologizes. And there's this, you know, great moment of connection, you know, and then the person dies, you know, or that there's this deep healing that takes place. And then the relationship becomes intimate and coveted and there's renewed growth. And that does happen sometimes, but actually I found it was the rarest kind of reconciliation and nothing you could make happen. And the second kind is when one person changes their frame of reference and their expectations. And what that means is then their perception of the relationship and its possibilities opens up whether or not the other person makes significant changes. So it's, it's basically you, you stop hitting your head against the wall, trying to get something that you will never get from the other person. And then you can look at are there any aspects of this relationship that are worth continuing? Even if it is flawed, even if it is not particularly intimate, is there still a way this connection matters? 
The third kind is where ambivalent or unresolved feelings remain, but both people agree to disagree. And that's what my mother and I did, you know, for a number of years. And we established some ground rules that enabled us to have a limited but cordial relationship. And so it's kind of like peaceful coexistence without a lot of real closeness. And I remember interviewing one woman and and what she said to me, she said, you know, so many times, Laura, it is the phenomenal recoveries and the great emotional stories, these magnificent breakthroughs that are told, but each of us can only have a few such breakthroughs in our life and that we shouldn't experience the failure to be miraculous as a failure, that even small steps forward represent progress. And I, I really look at reconciliation that way. And my mother and I, you know, achieved real success in our reconciliation, and not everyone can do that. In fact, in the back of the book, I had a little afterword that was addressed something like, for those of you struggling with an estranged relationship. And what I wanted to say was that, you know, there are situations in which keeping out an abusive or toxic person, keeping them out of your life is the wisest and healthiest choice, despite strong pressure either internally or externally to do otherwise. No one should ever sacrifice their own well-being to maintain a psychologically devastating relationship. No one should ever sacrifice their own well-being to maintain a psychologically devastating relationship. So the final option for reconciliation is not having a direct relationship with the person, but being able to find resolution inside yourself. This can be the best choice. You know, if the other person suffers from mental illness, if they're an addict or they're violent or toxic, then reconciliation becomes an inside job. And you shouldn't see this as a failure. When I started studying this topic, I used to think that the opposite of estrangement was reconciliation, but it actually, the opposite is peace. Like, what do we have to do to get to a place of peace with the reality of this relationship? There's a woman I interviewed whose parents had violently sexually abused her, and then they went on and violently sexually abused her children because she made the mistake of thinking, you know, this wouldn't happen to the next generation. And, you know, when that came out, she never saw her parents again. And, you know, decades went by. She was able to reclaim her life. Her children were able to heal And many decades later, she heard that her parents were dying. She knew she didn't want to go see them, and she didn't want anything to do with caretaking them. But she went back into therapy, and she was able to get to a place of finding compassion for them, seeing the bigger picture of their lives and what had happened to them to create so much cruelty, so much dysfunction, so much inability to connect except in the most unhealthy way. And she said she genuinely was able to send them loving kindness from afar. And so for her, that was her peaceful solution. Another person told me, she said, I've closed the door, but I've left the porch light on. And I I just always loved that idea because, you know, what I learned with my mother is that if you had asked me when I was 27, if you had said, Laura, you know, someday you're going to be at your mother's deathbed you know, and you're going to be taking care of her at the end of her life, I would have laughed in your face. And so the fact that I ended up where I did was such a surprise to me. And I I actually love that about life as we really never know what is going to happen. 
And so I like that idea of the porch light on. It's like, no, I'm going to go on with my life. I'm going to set my boundaries. I'm not going to get pulled into the situation. But if things change, the porch light is on. When you were cut off, she was still so alive in you. She was so inside of you. So one of the problems with a total cutoff is a lot of times you get stuck with it. But what you're describing is the inside job is, no, you're not stuck with it. You come to a place of peace with it, even without the other person. If the person has passed or if they're too toxic, that, that way you're not carrying it around and you know being haunted by it. Yeah, I think that in these situations, first, you really have to do your own healing. If it's been an injury, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, estrangements come because of a misunderstanding. It could be like now there's a lot about political differences, you know, these kind of things. But if the basis of it is an injury, you have to heal from that injury first. So, you know, reconciliation is not an early stage of the healing process, even though you want to. You want to make it all nice right away. And people in your family often will urge you, you know, like, why are you dragging that around? It happened so long ago. But I think ultimately our job is figuring out the distance that is optimum for that relationship. There was a woman, I another woman, she, this one was for the courage to heal. And she was similar to me. She and her mother wrote beautiful letters to each other. They would correspond and these letters, you know, were touching and they were close and they felt connected. And the woman would say, well, I think I'll go visit my mother. And she would go and the relation in person, the relationship would blow up. It was horrible. Her mother was hostile. She would flee. She would go home and it would take her months to piece herself back together again. And then she and her mother would start writing letters again. And months would go by, there'd be all these letters. And then the woman would say, you know, maybe I was mistaken. Maybe my mother isn't so bad. I think I'll go visit her. And this cycle kept repeating over and over. And she said, until one day I realized I have a mother in letters. This is the way that we can relate to each other. That's as close as we can get. And which is definitely something. I mean, that's something that is not nothing. You know what I mean? Like that is a not that can be enough. Versus going in and going in and going in. It's like being able to hold what you really can get is beautiful. Speaking of letters, and that part of her recognition was that it was the the letters were the connection, the letters were the love between them. That's where that she could get as close as she can. You do a lot of writing workshops and you help people heal through writing. And again, part of why this is so interesting to us is that like the therapy process is literally about trying to find words for this experience in the body and creating a coherent narrative of your life. And so this is one way of doing that so powerfully. So could you just speak you know, about your experience with that and begin to now share a couple of the opportunities that you might have for listeners that would be interested. Sure. I've been teaching writing for 25 years. And what I love the most is really writing as a tool for healing and transformation. I also do some teaching with people who are writing memoirs or novels, you know, more about structure and the the craft of writing. But I think where my heart is, is getting a group together. I love what happens in a group group dynamics and having people write to very kind of provocative, interesting, probing prompts and then read their work out loud. And there's something about just free writing and writing the first thing that comes to your mind that you land on and then writing continuously for, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. That is 
incredibly powerful and it cuts through the discursive mind and whatever we are really deeply feeling and thinking comes out on the page. The other thing I love about writing is that for me, my memory is not very good either. And writing is a way to retrieve memories from the past. It's almost like, you know, you throw out a line and you start reeling it in and you never know what's going to come up. And the more you start to explore, like the more I wrote about my mother as I was working on the memoir, the more memories started coming back. So writing is a way to access the past. And sometimes it's it's an oblique entry. Like for instance, I'm going to teach a workshop this weekend about, you know, it's called untying the mother knot with words. And it's people writing about their mothers. And one of the prompts that I'm going to give is my mother's legs. And you know, if that prompt, if someone just starts writing, they're going to get to the heart of the relationship with their mother in a much more profound way than if I said, tell me about a difficult experience you had with your mother. When you get into the concrete sensory detail, you know, whether you knew your mother, you didn't know your mother, you had an adopted mother, your mother was brilliant, your mother was horrible, your mother was disabled, your mother was a runner. I mean, you're going to be able to write about her legs or that you never knew her legs. So sometimes with writing, we get into something from the side. It could be writing about an object a person loved. When I was working on the memoir and I was trying to get away from creating my mother as an ogre, I made a list of these secret bonds we had were things that we loved to do together. And it was like playing cards, going to the theater, going to the movies, and certain secrets I knew about her and certain secrets she knew about me. And I began to write about those. And I was able to open up the positive aspects of the relationship, you know, to give the book more balance. So when I work with people, I teach weekly classes online that are, you know, people who want to write once a week and have this experience of dipping into their stories. And I also love to teach retreats and I teach them all over the U.S., just starting to go back into teaching in person. And I also take people traveling like this June, I'm taking a group of writers to Tuscany so it's like a vacation that has a creative component and the writing, which we do for maybe a couple of hours a day, it just grounds the whole group and creates a really nice intimacy among all the people. And then the rest of the day, we're out exploring or hiking or swimming or doing cultural things. So I just love what happens. I've, I've done workshops that are focused on grief and loss in writing. I'm doing Now I'm doing some focused on mothers and daughters. I teach one called How to Write About What You Can't Remember, which is something I had to learn as a craft skill for this memoir. If people are interested in studying with me or going on a trip or coming to a retreat, they should just go to www.lauradavis.net. You know, all my workshops are there. All my classes are there. You can download the first five chapters of the memoir and read them for free. You can order the audiobook. You know, everything to do with me is there at lauradavis.net. And I invite people to come. Yeah, we'll have that in the show notes as well as your books. I did have one association about the prompts because that's another thing that you offer is prompts through email, I believe. A version that I have of prompts that really took me into a different direction in writing was thinking of my animals and, you know, my animals through the lifespan. You know, they were kind of a primary comfort for me. And so all I had to do is begin to really like picture them. And I even went on the internet and tried to find likenesses of them. 
and began to tell stories about them. And right away, now I'm seven, you know, now I'm 11. It really anchored me. And it felt like in a way, a more honest way versus like what I think I know about myself at seven. It's like, no, I'm with my seven-year-old eyes playing with this dog, you know? I'm just reemphasizing kind of the creative power that you help people harness. And I would really highly recommend that for anybody interested, whether it be through these workshops or through locally, through your own communities. So it's a couple of things. It's writing, period. It's sharing the writing. So then you have the interpersonal piece of it. And there's something about you know, writing it and just letting it fester in a notebook. I mean, I think writing is great no matter how you do it, but when the writing just festers in a notebook and you never look at it again, it's very different than speaking the words out loud. You know, I mean, I think it's great to have a trusted listener who's not there to critique you, but just to receive and listen and thank you. Could be a therapist, could be a sister, could be a friend, could be a writing group, you know, or a writing teacher or a workshop. But even if you just read it out loud to yourself. There's something about speaking it that suddenly you connect with the reality of what you've written. You know, I do a lot to help people bring sensory detail in because if I take someone back in a guided meditation to like a turning point in their life and I set them in that scene and I ask, you know, if I had been sitting there next to you, what would I have heard? What sounds were close to you? What sounds were far apart? you know, what would I have seen? What would I have smelled? What would I have tasted? If you look to the right, what's there? If you look to the left, what's there? If you look above you, what's there? What were you holding in your hand? And if I go through that for 10 or 15 minutes, and then people write, the recall is amazing. You know, it's it's like you just need a little bit of a nudge to start going back. And then as you write, the writing brings up more. It's, it's a very simple and very profound. People don't have to consider themselves a writer you know, or want to publish or anything like that to benefit from writing as a tool for healing. Well, it's so powerful that I'm, I have the urge to say, and be careful, <laughs> you know, that, and be um, careful. Yes. that the interpersonal piece is the part too, the, that you're sharing the writing, that both you're finding the words, which is again, part of the neurobiology, like growing security is being able to name these experiences. But then the interpersonal part of sharing it, and being able to do this in a compassionate, loving safe way to help you grow. Yeah, I have a little ebook that if you go to my website, lauradavis.net, you'll get this. It's like a bonus. It's a gift that people get for free. And it's a 30-day practice to help build courage through writing. And the first pages of that are all about how do you build a container to be safe enough to do this kind of writing. So you're absolutely right. You know, you need to set it up in a way that you know how you're going to take care of yourself. You know, if memories come up or feelings come up, you make a plan ahead of time. You sometimes I have people do timed writing so they know it's only going to be for 10 minutes or 15 minutes and that they have a ritual that they do getting into it. They have a way they a plan for grounding themselves afterwards. So, yeah, it has to be done carefully, but, you know, it can be. And then it's very, very powerful. So many directions to go from this. So uh, as people are listening, there's so many options. I would highly recommend that you get Laura Davis's book, The Burning Light of Two Stars. It's very powerful, very fast read. I got through it very quickly because it is so, the story is so compelling. You can't put it down. Is there anything else you'd like to share or tell us? On my website, there's a little logo. You know, my tagline for myself is healing words that change lives. And everything I am discussing 
is in that ballpark, whether it's something I've written or whether it's, you know, setting up a place for other people to write or, you know, what I used to do on the radio when I was younger. I just love spreading that word and helping people to use writing as a tool for self-knowledge, for grounding. I just want to say one last thing is that if you write something difficult, you know, let's say you're doing some kind of excavation where you're exploring something very painful, you can couple that with a writing prompt that will help you ground. So what I would recommend is writing about, you know, it's not just to reveal trauma, you could write something like, what gives me strength? This morning in my class, I had people, I read a poem, and then I had them write two lines. One was, I'm not dead yet. And then the second part was, and I'm grateful for. I'm not dead yet, and I'm grateful for it. They were amazing pieces. There's research about this. So you're absolutely right that, you know, they call it security priming. That's what you're doing, that you can, just using these words right now, well, immediately, I mean, it's very, very, very powerful. So it evokes the compassion, it evokes the connection, it evokes those the feelings of safety. So you are right on with that for sure. And I think it's a good place to wrap up around this notion of we're not alone. People are there and you are worth putting these stories together. And there's a lot of help out there. There's a ton of help for you. So thank you so much. This has been really powerful. And I just know people are going to be so happy. And I'm positive that you're going to hear from people. You are a pleasure to talk to. And actually, it's really fun for me to hear some of the psychological terminology for what I have naturally been doing for decades without knowing what it is. And I, I love when people read the book, too, and they say, oh, well, you did blah, 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 in terms of. <laughs> so for me, it's it's kind of fun to have you put language to some of the things I have done instinctively. Uh, yeah, I've actually just had to resist it through the hair because I didn't want to interrupt your beautiful story flow. <laughs> but I guarantee you there's people listening that'll be like, ventral vagal, you know, like, oh, you're in parasympathetic now. And oh, you're, you know, <laughs> we're a bunch of nerds. Well, this is part of why I was saying, no, this totally fits for this podcast. It's perfect. You have really changed so many people's lives. It's like you're a healer. So it's just a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 